Stay in the know this summer with a membership to the DSR Network. For more than five years, Deep State Radio has been on top of all the key foreign policy and national security stories impacting the world. We're grateful to our members who make all of this possible and hope that you will consider supporting our work by becoming a member. Members get access to our expanded offering of exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to participate in discussions via our member Slack community, our weekly member briefings, and our DSR Daily Brief newsletter delivered to your inbox each evening. Members also receive all of our content via private member feed that you can add to your podcast app of choice. Help us celebrate our five years together by becoming a member. Join now for just $5 per month or $50 per year. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. Thank you very much. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another of our special episodes where we focus in on a book that we think you really ought to read. This week's that book is Dana Milbank's The Destructionists. As you no doubt know, Dana Milbank is a nationally syndicated op-ed columnist for the Washington Post. He also provides political commentary for various TV outlets, and he's the author of three books on politics, including the national bestseller Homo Politicus. His latest book's full title is The Destructionists, The 25-Year Crack-Up of the Republican Party. And I would add, it's a terrific book, and if you read his columns, you will see all of the hallmarks, which include the fact that despite having written about this stuff for a long time, he has not lost his sense of humor, his uh, sense of outrage, or his common sense. And and we are grateful for all those things and for the fact that you would join us. So thank you. Thank you, David. It's uh, it's an honor and a pleasure to uh, see you and hear you through the magic of Zoom. I I found this book terrific because it went right to a couple of core issues that are underdeveloped or appreciated widely enough. And that is that the pickle that we find ourselves in, in this country with regard to our political system and its dysfunction is not a purely Trumpian one, but it has long roots. And uh, while you talk about the 25-year crack up of the Republican Party, I also appreciated the fact that you went back to other potential starting points you considered for this beginning of this decline. Could you talk a little bit about what those were and how you arrived on the one you arrived at? Sure. Whenever you date something like this, it's got to be a little bit arbitrary because things don't happen on a dime generally. So you could go back to the time of Goldwater, the time of Nixon, the time of Reagan. And in many ways, the the troubles that we're seeing right now, which is you know fundamentally a a racial backlash. You know, we have an emerging multicultural America, and this is a racial backlash against it of the white, often male, 
generally non-college educated Americans who feel and are being told that they're you know losing their place. They're being frightened because in the year 2045, give or take, this becomes a white minority country. The origins of that were back in the 1960s when the Immigration Act overhauled our immigration and uh, set us on a path that we're on now. Also, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act made America, you know, for the first time, a true democracy, where it really was a concept of one person, one vote. So in a way, we've been seeing a, a backlash since then. I certainly saw it with Richard Nixon's Southern strategy. I certainly saw it uh, uh, through Reagan. I pick the point of the Republican Revolution uh, of 94 because that's when it went into overdrive. That was the moment there was a generational change in politics. The greatest generation, which had dominated, uh, began to fade. The baby boomers uh, came to dominate with the you know, sort of cultural warriors who learned their trade in the 1960s. It was also when Democrats lost uh, the South, you know, the disappearance of the segregationist Southern Democrats after the civil rights era. That had become virtually complete by that time. So the parties had realigned along racial lines. So that's why I use that point. The chief overarching theme that's going on here is a, a racial backlash. But Newt Gingrich, as I, I hope we can discuss, also sort of pioneered the modern politics we have, the, the corrosive modern politics we have, where your, your opponent isn't just your opponent, he's your enemy. Uh, he's not uh, faithful or loyal to the United States. It's also the time when Republicans started just sort of inviting into the tent more of the uh, uh, the extremists, you know, in, in terms of the militia and patriot groups. We've seen waves of that and increasing uh, affiliation with the violent. We've also seen, I would argue, beginning and accelerating with Newt, the deliberate use of disinformation as a political tool and also the deliberate use of dysfunction to sort of discredit government as a political tool. So uh, Gingrich pioneered many of those and dramatically accelerated those with his revolution of 94. He also pioneered much of the tenor of current politics. I, I recall one reference to him saying it, you know, it was that the Republicans were not, I don't, I, I'm going to get the word wrong, but were not nasty enough, were not mean enough in how they were summing up the Democrats. And he sort of threw the switch. Now, you, you know, one could say, well, Lee Atwater played a role in that or some others. But right around that time, the switch was thrown from, you know, kinder, gentler Republican politics to the other side's the enemy and they're going to destroy us. Give some sense of why it was right then. Yeah, well, in 1990, GOPAC, which was uh, Newt Gingrich's political action committee, put out a memo to Republicans, Republican candidates, how to speak like Newt. And the idea is you want to refer to Democrats as traitors, as sick, as corrupt. Uh, this whole litany of pejoratives and uh, adjectives. You hear words like that today. It's like, oh, yeah, well, that's, that's sort of how people talk about each other. That's, how, that's politics. It wasn't how politics worked back then. This was, it was sort of shocking. You know, and of course, Newt uh, famously took on Jim Wright, the Democratic Speaker of the House, with a whole series of very personal uh, ethics allegations that, at least in their original incarnations, turned out not to be true. But it it created this whole feeding frenzy. Then he went after Tom Foley, Wright's successor, in a very you know, spreading sort of personal sexual innuendo. And he was very much about 
describing politics as war, describing the opponents as the enemy. And that was the essential change, the idea that they are your opponents, not just people you good people that you disagree with, but they are disloyal. They're they're traitors to the United States. And of course, if you believe the other side are traitors to the United States, what, what's the point of like negotiating with them? The, you, know, you can't have honest discussion, honest negotiation. You certainly can't have compromise if the other side is, is your enemy that is trying to bring out the destruction of the United States. You know, I was talking, I was telling somebody uh, last night that I was going to do this and talk to you. And we got into one of those kind of DC sort of ESPN discussions, you know, who's the, <laughs> who's the goat, you know, but who's, uh, this is kind of on the negative side. And, and, and naturally the argument came up that no, the politicians are just tools. It's really Rupert Murdoch. It's really the, the bubble. It strikes me as not entirely coincidental. And you mentioned this in, in a different way that 1991 was the year that the World Wide Web was established. So this kind of contract with America began and grew with the internet, with cable TV. I think you've pointed out that Rush Limbaugh started a couple of years beforehand. So you had the right-wing echo chamber really born at this same moment, right? Right. And that's that's no coincidence. Yeah, I think Rush Limbaugh went national. I think it was 1988, which is just as Gingrich is becoming Republican whip and rising through the party. And before Fox News started in 1996, I think it was. But Rush Limbaugh pioneered this conservative radio, but there was this huge proliferation of that. I think there were you know, 400 or so around the time of the Republican Revolution. So this was Fox News before Fox News. Gingrich was very adept at that. He was also very adept at using the, the new medium of C-SPAN. He could uh, be on the House floor denouncing Democrats' patriotism, among other things. And because he recognized the camera was only going to be on him, on the speaker, he could pretend that the audience was full of Democrats and they had absolutely nothing to say in response to everything that he was doing. So he was able to uh, manipulate what was then a new medium and certainly did the same with their blast faxes to, uh, to conservative talk radio hosts. So th- this was the beginning of this ecosystem. And as, as I wrote, it went from fax to Fox. And of course, there was also the Matt Drudge and the Drudge Report coming in there. So it was, there was, it was a a major change in technology and in the structure uh, of the media business. And it was, you know, it's nothing like what we see today when there's an entirely information is entirely siloed and you're protected by social media from any information that might challenge your worldview. So, but this was the beginning of things going in that direction. So I I think that's right. I think that Newt would not have been able to rise without these changes in the media, which he, he very cleverly saw and exploited. It strikes me even listening to this and that another phenomenon that began right back then, right at roughly the same time, was the influx of what we now call dark money, but you know, sort of institutional Republican funds into state house races, local races, the Cokes, the other, you know, the others trying to change the institutional structure of American politics to protect their interests, which over time, 20 years, 
led to Citizens United, were institutionalized, and and so forth. And so that was yet another vector of this change, right? Yeah, that's right. And I, I sort of write about that through the lens of the uh, Supreme Court and the politicization of the court, which became more of a uh, an arm of the Republican Party. And I particularly tell the story through Mitch McConnell, who is more than anybody else, the architect of that. But of course, it begins before that, you know, Bush v. Gore in 2000. And Mitch McConnell sensed very early on that uh, you know, the judiciary was the key to Republican success. And he set himself about fixing the courts in a manner that would, would suit him, also became a, a chief pioneer of the fight against uh, campaign finance reform, against what was originally McCain-Feingold, and also became a key figure in what became Citizens United. But it became a bit of a, a symbi- symbiotic relationship, got not just a conservative majority on the court, but what was increasingly a Republican majority, which was blessing uh, gerrymandering. This has happened in a variety of ways, weakening the Voting Rights Act and Shelby County and in various other cases, and obliterating campaign finance laws, most prominently in Citizens United. And these were all things that had the benefit of protecting minority rule, further entrenching Republican power, making it less susceptible to the whim of the electorate in any given year. That's how I, I get at that notion of the, you know, the changing money in politics and the changing jurisprudence. But yes, I, I, that, that begins in the late 1990s, but I say really accelerates after that. It's interesting because, you know, I was around back then. I was in the Clinton administration. I remember the vitriol. I remember walking around in an empty Commerce Department because government was shut down and we had sort of reached extremes. And there was a lot of talk about a change in the tenor of politics. But here we are, 30 years later, 25 years later, and it's not the tenor. And as you know, you use the title of the deconstructionist, something is being deconstructed. And what's being deconstructed is American democracy. You've got minority rule as a component of that. But we also have a sort of move, particularly during the Trump years, towards out-of-the-closet authoritarianism, where because of the a scorched earth approach of Republicans in the House and in the Senate because the courts have been tipped. The checks and the balances against too much concentration of power at the top began to fall away. And now, of course, we have people defending the unitary executive concept, the, the presidency as a, almost a monarchical office. The book beautifully and I think very effectively describes a progression and gives great examples along the way. I really encourage everybody to read it of lying isn't new. Here's when lying took place. Racism isn't new. Here's where racism took place. Anti-Semitism isn't new. Here's where it took place throughout this period. But there is something qualitatively different about now. It does seem to be reaching a, a, a tipping point of sorts, right? Do you agree Absolutely. with that? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, w- w- my argument is that Trump didn't invent this. He certainly accelerated it. Uh, there's, no, you know, there's no question about that. And in each of these iterations, it's gotten worse and worse. So, it, as, you know, to, to use the sort of authoritarianism or the, the accompanying notion of violence, well, I went back to the days in 1994, 1995, 
before the Oklahoma City bombing. A lot of the same rhetoric we're hearing right now in the wake of the Mar-a-Lago search against the IRS, that sort of thing. It was a change from saying of conservatives, Republicans being for limited government to being anti-government, you know, government as the enemy. Uh, and you see it, you can see the themes like that repeat again during the Obama administration, the rise of Tea Party. Uh, again, a huge surgence, uh, resurgence of these anti-government uh, uh, patriot groups. And then this happened again, of course, during the, uh, uh, the Trump administration and has accelerated now. The argument is I don't think you would have had a January 6th, for example, if you hadn't had all of these antecedent events. So I went back to the, uh, you know, what we call the Brooks Brothers riot from the recount uh, in 2000, where these Republican operatives stormed the offices of the uh, Miami officials doing, doing the recount. You know, people were kicked and punched. There's chanting, which as an isolated event, okay, that was not good. That was weird. Begins to have more of a context when you see what came after it. These similar events happened during 2010 with the Obamacare debate, the mob outside of the House chamber, police, you know, struggling to maintain order, Republican lawmakers out on the balcony, whipping up the, the fervor of the crowd. So I think my argument is that Donald Trump is he's not an ideological guy. He's an opportunist. I mean, he was he was uh, you know, originally pro-choice, uh, you know, wanted universal health care. He, he's, he's, he was uh, promoting uh, you know, racial tolerance. But he saw where things were going, particularly with the Tea Party, and then he got out in front of that movement. You know, he, he picked the basket of issues that would most reflect what the Republican base wanted, what they wanted to hear. He launched essentially the birther movement, suggesting that Barack Obama was not uh, American born. So, and his, you know, his assaults on the various, you know, pillars of democracy, whether the courts, the Justice Department, the press, these all had antecedents. All of these institutions had been weakened for years before that happened. He certainly took it to levels we could not have imagined before. One of the things that is uh, chilling as one reads it, and, and you, you know, you've talked about several of the trends that have progressed throughout time. There are others, you know, related to the ones you were just talking about, about violence, whether it was, I don't know. Sarah Palin talking about, you know, loading, you know, up and or targeting. Don't retreat, reload. Right, right, right. Exactly. And, you know, and other things. But here's what is not really talked about in your book because it didn't happen. And that is a reversal, a slowing down, an effective counter to this. Now, yes, Joe Biden is president. And yes, you know, the Democrats have a completely different agenda. But even as they do, Trump maintains control of the party. The alternatives to Trump have not condemned this approach. The, with each ensuing offense that's revealed, the Republican Party embraces something even more unconscionable. You know, they've gone from Ronald Reagan joking about, you know, I'm here from the government and I'm here to help, to Trump and Steve Bannon trying to obliterate the administrative state and fire 50,000 people and defund the FBI and get rid of anybody who is loyal to the Constitution rather than the party, it's accelerating and accelerating. Do you see anything 
on the horizon that is likely to effectively slow that acceleration or or even reverse the trend? Well, look, I'd, I'd like to say I, I, I can see such a thing. Unfortunately, it's hard to be optimistic in the short run. We were talking about earlier, I, I fear that we are in one of those moments that things are accelerating and getting worse and worse. It has the feeling of a pre-Oklahoma City moment. So, you know, God forbid we reach a moment where enough people have been stoked with enough violent rhetoric that things really get ugly uh, and out of control. If that happens, will there be some sort of a recoiling, some sort of a, you know, pulling ourselves back from the abyss? Nothing in recent years seems to pull us back from the abyss. We just keep going closer and closer, falling further and further into it. Could there be a cataclysmic event? I, well, I hope it doesn't, doesn't come to that. And I'm not even sure that such an event would, in, in fact, change things. I've, I'm very optimistic in the long run because the, the, the sort of demographic changes that have been causing this whole backlash, you know, it's going to be resolved. This is going to be a white minority country. The electorate will change. And certainly younger uh, generations of Americans have very different views, you know, whether you're white or people of color, you have very different views of race. So I believe this will be resolved. It may not be in our lifetime, though. So that's not very satisfying. So, uh, you know, Long term optimism, this will be resolved. And I think in the short run, what we need to do is rally Democrats, small d Democrats. I'm not talking about uh, partisans, but, you know, partisans for democracy to say we've got to protect these institutions as much and for as long as we can so that there is there is at least something. There's some at least vestiges of it left as this demographic change comes. So I. I, I wish I could say I see something that's going to change it, but in the in the short term. But I, you know, we keep asking ourselves after each primary night or whatever, is Donald Trump still have his grip on the Republican Party? And and yes, he does. But I think in a way that's the wrong question. It's does Trumpism have a grip on the Republican Party? Because in, in a sense, it hardly matters if it's Donald Trump or or Ron DeSantis if he's saying the exact same things that that Trump is saying. And there's no question that uh, Trumpism. Has, has totally consumed the Republican Party. And that's why Trump didn't create this and it's not going away whenever he does. For those of you who have been listening to our podcast for a long time, you can now understand exactly why I think this is a book that you ought to buy and read, because this is exactly the view that I and others here have been espousing, which is don't focus on the day-to-day headlines, focus on the longer-term trends. And I think here you have, in Dana's analysis, two things. You've got a 25-year arc of change in the Republican Party, but you also have an acknowledgement that there is a underlying demographic and cultural change that's going on in the United States that's a 240-year arc or 100-year arc. And it's one of those things that drives everything else. And I think this book extremely well frames that. Now, I I strongly also urge that you uh, follow Dana's columns because he covers the daily headlines extremely well. And again, as I've said, without losing his sense of humor or outrage or common sense about those things. And uh, that's rare enough. But we're in in as tumultuous a time as I have experienced in my lifetime. And and this is as good a book about why we're here in American politics as I've ever read. So, Dana, congratulations. Thank you. 
Well, thank you very much for those kind words. That's an honor coming from you. And I appreciate all you're doing to keep up the fight as well. It's all we, all we can do here in the peanut gallery, but uh, I hope that our, uh, our listeners will get this. I think it will inform them and guide them in a good way. The book is The Deconstructionist, The 25-Year Crack-Up of the Republican Party. Go get it and read it. Follow Dana's columns in the post. And maybe we'll be able to continue this conversation at some time in the not-too-distant future. I've really enjoyed it.